to say that based on publicly available information regarding environmental performance or social or governance that you're going to be able to outperform the market over time basically says that the semi-strong form of the efficient market hypothesis is wrong. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast series. I'm Emily Donahue. The three letters E, S, and G are a daily topic in news and business headlines. Whether those are about backlash against ESG or tighter regulation of ESG or criticism of ESG or the need to adapt ESG, those three letters seem inescapable these days. But let's stop there. Take a breath. Do we really know enough about what ESG actually is or how it applies to our business profits and risks? That's what our host David Lawrence asked Joe Grunfest, a professor of law and business and a senior faculty member at the Rock Center on Corporate Governance at Stanford Law School. Uh, Joe, it truly is a great pleasure, privilege, and honor to spend some time with you on an important topic of uh, ESG. And obviously, it's been my privilege uh, to basically confer with you, work with you over a wide number of years and a wide number of issues. And just sort of at the outset, because of the many hats you wear, uh, the views, obviously, that you're expressing are your personal views and not uh, those of any organization uh, with which you are aligned or employed by. You, you've been speaking and writing and uh, obviously providing some commentary on the important topic of ESG. Uh, maybe I can start with an easy question. Do we, have, do we have a commonly accepted definition of ESG and what it is? Well, well first, thank you very much for that overkind introduction, David. And second, with regard to the definition of ESG, uh, when I first heard that acronym, I thought it stood for Extremely Subjective Guessing. Uh, and the answer is no. We, we don't have a clear definition of what ESG is. People can't agree on how to measure E. People can't agree on how to measure S. People can't agree on how to measure G. And then people can't agree on how to combine and weight and compare the relative differences between E, which supposedly stands for environmental, uh, S, social, and G, governance. So we don't really have clarity, precision, and consensus within any one of those three letters. And then you run into the traditional problem of, you know, how much do you weight environmental relative to social relative to governance? Uh, so it's, it's, you know, in a certain sense, it's chaos. Uh, now, the incentives of the people involved are excellent. Who doesn't want a better environment? I do. Who doesn't want a better society? I do. Who doesn't want better governance? I do. But the idea that we can come up with formulaic approaches where you come up with scores and you say that, you know, one company is clearly better on ESG than another, I mean, it's, it's almost comic. And yet um, products, services companies have emerged over the last couple of years, all of whom uh, claim to 
at least have a way of measuring it, a way of refining it, a way of selling it, and making it very, very important, whether it's with the investment of capital, the rating of companies, activism with respect to corporations, and now uh, you know, it has entered into what I'll refer to the economic boycott market. And so I guess the question is, Joe, uh, notwithstanding an inability to come to a common definition and how to make these assessments, it hasn't stopped the market from marketing this notion of ESG. So maybe you can give us a sense of what's happening and why. Well, yeah, no, it's very simple. There's money to be made by generating ESG scores and by selling them. Uh, and, and there's no surprise in that. Uh, you know, and, and there's a certain sense in which that's more than fine um, because gathering data and explaining how much one company is emitting relative to another, if you're going to look at emissions data, uh, measuring, you know, diversity in a workforce, if you're going to be looking at social data, uh, and measuring, you know, various aspects of corporate governance, if you're going to be looking at governance data, I, I, I think that's terrific. I think collecting the data and presenting all of this information in an efficient manner where investors can respond intelligently to the information uh, is wonderful. I've got zero objection to any of that. Where things start going off the rails is where people sort of say, gee, this company scores a 93 and that company scores a 27 and therefore the 93 is better than the 27. No. Um, in some situations, the 27 is much better than the 93. And for investors to use these data intelligently they have to start and they have to ask themselves some very fundamental questions. And, you know, I, I just, I'll give you one example. There, there, there are two philosophies um, when it comes to, for example, environmental activism. There's one philosophy that says engagement, and there's another philosophy that says disengagement. An engagement philosophy would have an investor say, yeah, I'll hold stock in Exxon or Chevron, and, and I will work with those corporations to try to help make them the most responsible producers of hydrocarbons uh, and of alternative energy in the world. So I will engage with them. And then there's another philosophy that says, wait a minute, they're generating hydrocarbons. I think that's bad for the environment. Therefore, I'm not, I'm not going to invest in them. Well, you know, depending upon which philosophy you take, you get a totally different approach towards scoring. And that kind of problem replicates itself throughout the entire sector and is only one of the many reasons why there's profound confusion here. And yet significant capital is um, being deployed uh, against these ratings. And yeah, and there's... Right. And the short answer, you know, unfortunately, there's no reason to believe a priori that using these ratings will actually lead to superior investment performance. And indeed, Joe, I've heard, I've heard you speak about the lack of a track record and a lack of, a, uh, of evidence to support the thesis long-term performance of companies that are highly rated will outperform the market. Um, and 
you know, even if it's not about market performance, pension funds, whether, you know, these are corporate or state and city, university endowments, etc., are all being um, deployed using these days uh, some form of ESG metric. And so the question is, where do you see the market going with this? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and the question exists on so many different levels. Uh, so let's, let's take the question about just pure financial performance. Um, you know, there, there's a saying, Sagan's Law, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And the claim that ESG investing will outperform the market is an extraordinary claim, and I'll explain why. And the proof for it is not only not extraordinary, I would argue that it's basically non-existent. Uh, and to the extent that you've got studies out there supporting that proposition, these are cherry-picked studies that will not replicate out of sample, which means who cares at a certain level. Um, I mean, if you stop and if you think about it, one of the best understood propositions in modern finance is something called the semi-strong form of the efficient market hypothesis, which basically means you can't outperform the market if the only information you have is information that's already publicly known. Well, everything that the, the environmental community, and I'll include myself in that, knows about global warming is publicly known. Everything that we know about, you know, emissions from different fir firms to the extent that they're publicly known uh, is already incorporated in stock price. So to say that based on publicly available information re regarding environmental performance or social or governance that you're going to be able to outperform the market over time basically says that the semi-strong form of the efficient market hypothesis is wrong. And there is very, very little support for that proposition. And I'll take it one farther point. In order for that thesis to be true, the, the, the efficient market hypothesis would have to be wrong, not only with regard to a small point, but it would be wrong with regard to massive movements of tens of billions of dollars. And again, there, there's no support for that. And to take this um, a little bit further with you, Joe, uh, The Economist, um, in a recent edition cover story on ESG, um, had a, a commentary, and I'll maybe simplify it, hopefully doing sufficient justice, that uh, it's time to drop the S and the G, essentially, can't be measured very subjective but it is about the environmental and it is about the climate and the impact of companies um, on uh, their their respective operating environments and you know I guess the, the, the question I would have for you is directionally is that where you think you know this movement or you know the effort uh, should be directed Stay with the E. Uh, the short answer is, if what you want to do is prioritize according to that, which is objectively measurable, yes. The E is easily the most measurable consistently of the three. But there are aspects of the S and the G that are also clearly measurable. 
So, for example, if you care about workforce diversity, then you can measure the percentage of employees that are minorities. And you can measure that with, you know, essentially the same precision with which you can measure scope one carbon dioxide or methane emissions. Those, those numbers are knowable. Um, you can measure the extent to which a corporation has a, you know, classified board or a poison pill sitting on the shelf or different majority voting rules. So, I love The Economist, and I love that article, and I agree generally with the conclusion, but I think pieces of it are over-argued because we can get precision about some portions of S and about many portions of G, but the implications of those provisions are much harder in many situations to apprehend than the E. So, I, I, you know, I, I think in a certain sense... That Economist article is a terrific piece, but perhaps over-argues its thesis. Among the many hats you wear, and you were the innovator of what, what I'll refer to as uh, board literacy, financial literacy, governance literacy, and you built this um, great, great tra training center, which is now world-renowned from scratch. Uh, so for those people who think that... Uh, Joe, between his uh, role as an SEC commissioner, a partner at a leading law firm, and now a uh, uh, professor at Stanford, is not uh, an entrepreneur. He built something um, truly uh, as a startup in his garage, albeit the garage at Stanford. And uh, your director's institute is now world-renowned, and you've trained literally thousands and thousands of board members in terms of their roles, responsibilities, and what they really needed to know to be uh, a member of the board, not only of uh, public companies, but, you know, private companies as well. And so I want to build on that. And I'm, you know, I'm sure ESG is coming up in some aspects of your training, but um, you're advising a board member or, or the board writ large of a public company that is worried about ESG and their standing, ESG, they're worried about social activists, they're worried about their, broadly their reputation, their ability to recruit talented people to their company, um, investor following, institutional holders, etc. What are you telling the companies that they need to do with respect to ESG? The response is totally situational. The, the answer that I give to a Silicon Valley company that is, you know, deep in software space and competing for the top grads from, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and Caltech is dramatically different from the advice that I would give a natural resources company uh, headquartered in, uh, you know, Texas or Oklahoma uh, or some other jurisdiction hiring from a very different labor pool. Um, one of the really interesting aspects of ESG that, that people don't pay attention to is the labor market interaction. Um, if you have a good ESG profile, um, then in many ways, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a secret, it's easier to hire the best people out of Stanford uh, and out of Harvard, not of Yale. Um, and, and, you know, the reason for that is these, these people are highly valued. And when they decide which companies to join, 
they look not only at the compensation package, at the cash and at the equity, but they look at the workplace environment and do they think that they'll be comfortable given the company's culture and values and the like. So the effects of ESG in the labor market are really quite different than the way you need to think about ESG as an investor and asking yourself as to whether you can use ESG strategies to outperform the market. So let me give you a very simple example here. Suppose it is very optimal for a Silicon Valley company to adopt ESG strategies that would register as well left of center. Um, that's the optimal thing for them to do in order to be able to attract, you know, certain high value software engineers and they do that. But that doesn't mean that investing in that company will outperform the stock market because the stock market already knows that and the stock price has already been bid up to incorporate that. So both propositions are simultaneously true, that it makes sense for the company, for labor market considerations, to adopt a certain portfolio of ESG characteristics, because that helps them get the employees they need. But by the same token, that doesn't mean that investors in the company will outperform on average and over time. Uh, Joe, I want to make sure that I'm hearing and the audience is hearing what I think may be a very important point here uh, around ESG and beyond, you know, it. it is different things for different companies and your advice would be different for different industries, etc. But what I've clearly heard you say is that a company's ESG rating as um, as subjective as it may be and um, as lacking of tangible evidence as it may be is nonetheless critical in today's labor market for some companies in certain industries. And that, that is what certain people who are looking for jobs are looking at before they entertain the possibility of employment at the company. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't look at, you know, the ESG ratings that investors look at. From an employee's perspective, it's, it's a subset of those ESG concerns that will, will drive labor market concerns. So if you wanted to, you could build a totally different ESG metric that would ask the question, how aligned are the company's values and policies with its optimal position in the labor market? And my prediction would be that you would generally find pretty damn good alignment because in today's labor market in particular, companies are very sensitive to understanding what they need to do to attract the employees that they want. And in fact, I would argue that the strongest mechanism of action that aligns ESG concerns with corporate policy is not through the stock market. It's through the labor market, and particularly in labor markets where there is scarcity and employees know that they have bargaining leverage, and that basically means, you know, high-powered information technology workers. Uh, fascinating insight. Um, 
there may be a, I guess, a Grunfest metric here for rating uh, companies and potentially outperforming the market. Oh, um, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me switch to the SEC, Joe. And I know you've been following this very, very carefully. Uh, the initiatives of the SEC, some of the things they're focused on. Can you give our audience some insights about what's happening in Washington, a little bit about why and where do you think it's all going? Well, I think the situation is extraordinarily difficult in Washington uh, on so many different levels. Um, you know, a lot of attention has been focused on the Supreme Court and the implications of its analysis, you know, in Dobbs for abortion rights and the like, and all that's entirely legitimate and correct. By the same token, there's another large vector at work, and that is the Supreme Court's antipathy towards the administrative state. Uh, there's good reason to believe that the court's adopting a variety of strategies that are designed directly and indirectly to limit the ability of regulatory agencies, whether it's the SEC, the EPA, uh, the FTC, um, to engage in various forms of regulation. And one of the interesting analytic devices that's grown in significance over the last several years is something that's called the Major Questions Doctrine, which is a relatively easy way for the Supreme Court simply to say, look, if there's a question that we view as a major policy question, and if we don't see clear congressional delegation of authority, we will assume Congress never intended to give the agency the authority to regulate in that space. Now, simply stating the proposition raises a million questions about how you apply it, and those are all damn good questions because we don't have clear answers. When is a question major, and when is it minor, and when is it intermediate? And how clear does the signal of congressional delegation have to be? And is there some kind of a sliding scale? The more significant the question, uh, the more clarity we need in the delegation. How does all of this work? And part of the challenge we face now is that with the Supreme Court as currently composed, um, there's real reason to concern to be concerned that there'll be a muscular application of this doctrine and that many questions will be viewed as major and the amount of delegation you need will be clear uh, and the government therefore will be prevented from taking any action unless Congress acts and we all know that it's harder and harder by the day to get Congress to act. So you look down the road and there is an unfortunate trajectory that leads to paralysis uh, at the federal government level, and let's let's be candid. There are there there, there is a segment of the pol of the uh, you know populace that likes the idea of governmental paralysis, where the government can't do anything, whether it's to address you know uh, COVID or a million other issues. You know, monkeypox, bring it on. Well, Joe, it is the town that says a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Um, well, here's part of the problem. Yeah. We may have many, many more crises because we are setting up a mechanism that makes it even more difficult to respond to the crisis. I mean, look, let's be candid. Our government is having a hard time responding to crises even when it has the authority. 
And if you limit its ability to respond to crises, the problem is not going to get any better. So drill down on ESG and some of the um, initiatives uh, with the SEC. How do you see that turning out? Well, there are various schools of thought. Um, You know, if the SEC adopts a rule and if the rule is then vacated by the courts, well, the SEC may claim a moral victory, but it isn't going to help the environment if at the end of the day you don't have better environmental disclosure. So there's a great debate about whether the SEC's proposed rules where it would require disclosure of scope one and scope two emissions and in some situations scope three emissions and, you know, very expansive uh, discussion of climate objectives and the effect of the climate uh, on on corporate earnings and the like. There's large debate about the extent to which those rules will or will not be upheld on appeal. And, you know, my view on this is great. Let the SEC go forward and its rules either will or won't be upheld. Terrific. Not a problem. Um, But I always thought that there's another and better way for the SEC to approach this challenge. And that is, rather than have the SEC come up with its own disclosure regime that requires publicly traded corporations to measure their emissions and report them, what we should understand is that there are many other regimes that already exist that require publicly traded corporations and all other corporations to measure their emissions and disclose them. Um, The European Union is going to be adopting rules that will mandate emissions disclosures far more expansive than anything that the SEC is proposing. The state of California has already passed legislation out the Senate. It'll, in high probability, it'll be enacted by the legislature and wind up on the governor's desk this year. That calls for, expo- for, for, for disclosures far more expansive than what the SEC is, is proposing. So an alternative strategy for the SEC is simply to say, look, California is requiring you to disclose. The EU is requiring you to disclose. The EPA is requiring you to disclose. Japan is going to require you to disclose. We don't, and and these disclosures are also on a global basis, not just intrastate, not just within EU. If that's right, then we should be able to get all of the emissions disclosures that the SEC wants, all right, in terms of quantitative disclosures, plus more if the SEC simply requires that registrants disclose as part of their SEC filings the information that they're making publicly available to EU authorities, California authorities, and other authorities. And that approach rests on a far more traditional theory of SEC disclosure. You're simply taking information that's already in the public domain, you're aggregating that information, and you're presenting it in a way that's more digestible for investors and that allows investors more accurately to to incorporate information to the price of securities. That's a much more easily defensible position on appeal than to say we have the authority to come up with an entirely new measurement system and force publicly traded companies to disclose that information. 
Sounds like you're giving sound advice to the SEC in terms of how to survive an appeal to the Supreme Court. You know, it's one thing to give advice. It's another thing for the advice to be accepted. Two totally different questions. I I know you say that not only as a uh, lawyer, professor, but also as a parent, Joe. So So I also say that as a husband, because I know that I often get excellent advice, and it's highly doubtful that I always accept it. Thank you for spending a very, very informative half hour with us uh, to go through ESG. Uh, Obviously, it's evolving. And I'd like to, uh, recognizing the significant demands on your schedule, I'd actually like to invite you back um, for maybe a part two around this, because I think there is a message, and you and I have spoken about this a little bit, um, which is, why is ESG important? Why now? And in part, I, at least I see this as a continuation of the, uh, the debate um, from 50 years ago from, I think Milton Friedman wrote, I think it was a piece in the New York Times, Joe, you would know this better than I, but, you know, basically the obligations of a uh, corporation, the responsibility of a corporation um, and uh, to its shareholders and writ large. But uh, again, another conversation to be had, hopefully. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Professor Joseph Grunfest is the William A. Frank Professor of Law and Business at Stanford Law School. David Lawrence is the founder and chief collaboration officer of RAIN. RAIN is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our clients. Learn more about RAIN's market leading risk intelligence products at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for joining us.